when I was working on this, I remember a uh, time in Royal Ambassador Camp when we were having devotional um, before our you know, bedtime or before we were supposed to go to bed. And uh, they assigned um, each night to some of the older camp, got campers the responsibility for the evening devotion. And one of my friends, uh, it was his time, and he announced that he was going to be bringing a devotion from PISM 1. <laughs> Took me a while to figure out where we were there. So we're in Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsels, counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. That spiritual prosperity there. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This psalm is a contrast between the righteous man and the unrighteous man. It begins with the word blessed or blessed and ends with the word perishing. And in those two words are found the great contrast of this psalm. Between the person who knows God and walks with God and the person who knows not God and does not walk with Him. For the person who walks with God, who knows God and walks with Him, is blessed. And the man, the person who does not know God and does not walk with Him, is perishing. And then he comes to, to verse 3, and he kind of summarizes what this blessing of God involves, what it means. It's kind of the mountaintop here. And when he's talking about he is blessed of God, this is the blessing. In fact, the word in the, the Old Testament word for the blessing of God means something that happens to man that he cannot cause to happen. It's something that God causes to happen. And it says that what God causes to happen is that he prospers, he's successful. Now he's not, a, I, I mentioned in the reading, it's not a reference to, to material prosperity. In spite of what you may see on television... It's not a reference to material prosperity. It doesn't mean that the guy who tr knows God and walks with God is going to necessarily hit the $10 million jackpot. He's talking about spiritual prosperity. He's talking about that spiritual life of the, the spiritual man whose life flourishes, is stately and sturdy and strong. Now, if I came to you this morning and said, Boy, have I got a deal for you. Would you like to be a, a person of whom it can be said 
that you are spiritually prosperous, that you are successful as a spiritual being, and that your life just flourishes and bears fruit? Would you be interested in that? Let me ask the question another way. Do you feel like that your spiritual life flourishes and prospers? How's your prayer life? Do you feel like that your prayer life is successful, is, is, is rich and flourishing? Most Christians I know say that the area of their greatest defeat is in their prayer life. Most Christians I know would be ashamed to describe their prayer life, would be embarrassed if somehow on some great huge screen their prayer life would be projected. How's your walk with God? Can you say of yourself honestly that you really believe that your spiritual life flourishes and that whatever you do as a spiritual being prospers? If not, then you must be interested in the deal I want to make for you. And I want us to go back up and try to find the secret of the successful spiritual life. Try to find the secret. What are the ingredients of this life that flourishes as a Christian? Now remember that the psalmist is using the analogy of the tree planted by rivers of water. Notice rivers, plural, an overabundance of resource, an advantageous position. And he's using the flourishing tree as an analogy for this rich and full spiritual Christian life that we so long to know and experience. So how is it that that is possible? First of all, this tree, this life, if it is to be healthy and flourish, must be planted in good soil. And verse 1, he describes the kind of soil in which this life is to be planted. And it is significant, watch this, that the most important thing about a healthy spiritual life is what takes place in the hidden life. Beneath the surface things, beneath what you can see. For the most important thing about a prosperous spiritual life takes place where you cannot see, in the hidden life, in the secret life. Now, I'm not sure that we would begin where the psalmist begins. If I were to come to you and ask, can you tell me the secret of a flourishing spiritual life, a Christian life that's rich and fruitful, I'm not sure that you, would, you and I would start where the psalmist starts started. He, he started with the negatives. He started with the denials. In essence, he's saying this, that the life that God blesses is a life that's blessed because of what it does not do. And the person that God blesses is a person who is known by the things he denies, by the things he does not do. And he talks about companions. And he says, if you want to be blessed of God, there are some things you cannot do. There are some people you cannot know. There are some places that you cannot go. He says that this life blessed of God is a person, this person is a person who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Now we know that walk is a biblical word for lifestyle, the order of one's life, one's lifestyle. We may or may not know that the word counsel there refers to the principles by which the world operates. And what he's saying is this, that the person God blesses is a person who does not allow his life to be shaped by the principles and philosophies by which the world operates. He does not, with respect 
to his, the order of his life, does not respect the advice that the world gives. There's a lot of advice. Somebody said that the reason why advice is cheap is because of an overabundance. When you have an overabundance of something, it's cheap. There's over an abundance, there's an overabundance of advice. The world has all kinds of advice about how you should live your life with regard to your business. I mean, you don't have to look very far to find out how you're to live your life with regard to business. I mean, you better do a job on him before he does a job on you. It's obvious that the advice the world gives, the principles and the philosophy by which the world operates are different than the principles and the philosophies by which God operates with regard to your to relationships. Anybody done you wrong? Has anybody ever hurt you? Then get your revenge. Get your revenge. Get what's coming to you. Don't you know that good guys finish last? The man God blesses is the man who, is, who has no respect for the advice the world gives. What he wants to know is what God wants and what God wills. And he does not stand in the way of sinners. Now there is an obvious progression here. It's, it's shaping one's life according to the advice of the principles and the philosophies of the world. Then he takes a stand there. It's the idea of conviction or commitment. He not only listens to the advice, he becomes convinced that it's correct. And he commits his life to that way. It becomes congealed in him. This is the way that works, he thinks. When Holiday Inn decided that they would build a $50 million casino in Atlantic City, R.W. Clymer, who was the who was the president and chief executive officer of Holiday Inns, resigned and wrote this reason. He said, It was my deep regard and respect for the Lord Jesus Christ that caused my resignation, for I could not make a commitment to that way of life. The man God blesses is a man who does not commit himself, does not stand on the conviction that these philosophies and principles so espoused by the world are right. And he does not, he said, sit in the seat of the scoffer. And the sitting there is an implication of leisure, of being comfortable. In other words, he's saying that the man God blesses, or the person God blesses, does not feel comfortable are you hearing? Does not feel comfortable identifying with those who ridicule what should never be ridiculed. And he finds no pleasure or leisure or comfort in identifying with those who reject those things which should never be rejected. When I was a little younger, I, I used to go up to the high schools, you know, had a little more energy then. I'd, I'd go up to the high schools to kind of get to spend some time with the kids in our, in our church, you know, eat lunch with them. And now, I am, I'll admit, I'm somewhat paranoid, but I, I, I'd, I'd go on this campus and there'd always be a little group, you know, that, that you, know, I'm, I'm, you know, in my paranoia, I know that they, as soon as I came on the campus, I could just, they, they'd be talking and laughing and all of a sudden they'd just be a hush, you know. 
And I'd, I'd come by, and you know, you could just see a kind of smile and a little bit of a snicker and a little smirk, and somebody might, you know, I, they they probably saying, you know, look look at that weirdo, you know, what's he doing up kind of thing, you know. I, I, my paranoia, I was thinking that. It's not paranoia when you know it's true, and, and when you know they're at, when they're after you. And one day I I, uh, I I was walking along there, and I walked past this little group, and I. I saw them smirking, and just as I went by, they just broke out laughing. I, I know somebody in the group, you know, said something about the preacher. And I turned around, and I saw one of our young people in the group. He was laughing. And, and it really hurt me. It really did. And there was this eye contact between me and this, this boy, and he heard me say, even though I did not verbalize it, Bobby, you don't belong in this group. And there comes a time, I think, when everybody has to decide. He has to, when a person makes a decision, do I feel comfortable in this group that mocks what never should be mocked? And I have noticed this, that when a person begins to allow his life to be shaped by the philosophy of a world, and he becomes convinced or committed to that lifestyle, the next step is that he begins to mock what never should be mocked, and that becomes a kind of a defense mechanism for him. Now here's the progression. The way to spiritual prosperity, he said, begins with this, that he does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He does not listen to an ad- a worldly advice. And he does not become committed to that lifestyle, that way. And he does not find comfort in those who mock what should never be mocked. Secondly, he, imu- he immediately moves from the denials to the delights, from the prohibitions to the positives. And the question is often asked to me, especially by youth, how is it possible, how do you get to the place where you don't listen to a worldly advice and you don't make a commitment to that way and you don't find comfort with those who do? How is that possible? Well, he answers, the, he answers that question in verse 2. He says, because his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. Now this law of the Lord here is, is a... Is a Um, It suggests the whole revelation of God as they knew it. It involves what God said and what God wills. It involves not only the commandment of God, but it involves what they knew to be what God desires in every man. And that becomes His delight. It's not grievous to Him. It's His delight. Now, you remember, um, if you have children, occasionally this happens, very rarely, but... You may say to your kids, you're leaving, you know, you're going down, down to do an errand or whatever, and you say, while I'm gone, I'd like for you to clean your room. Now, it's almost, it's kind of miraculous when they do that, but, you know. So you're gone downtown, and, and while you're gone, something just happens out of the blue. It just kind of zaps them, I guess. And they say, well, I believe I'll just go ahead and wash the dishes. That'll make daddy, mother, that'll make mother happy. And not only will I clean my room, I'll just clean the whole house. Now, I, I, that seldom ever happens, but occasionally, by some miracle of God, it does. And when the parent comes back, you know, the parent comes in, and here's, here's this child that says, Mother, you told me to clean... Well, yeah, I, I, I cleaned my room, but just look, I washed 
this is a subtle hit. I washed the dishes, and look, I made up the beds, and I cleaned the whole house. Now, what I'm talking about, the whole revelation of God, is when a person finds joy and delight in doing not only what he's commanded to do, but what he knows thrills the Father when he does it. It's not grievous. It's joy to Him. Now, somebody got a group of college students together one time. He said, now, there are two situations. One situation is is convenient and easy and happy and pleasurable. It's fun and exciting. It brings great pleasure. The other situation is inconvenient, costly, difficult, and it brings very little pleasure and happiness. He said, now these are two situations. Which do you believe to be the will of God? You've already anticipated the answer. The unanimous answer was the latter. That the will of God and the, whole, the revelation of God is grievous and, and inconvenient and costly. It's interesting that this word delight there means to bend forward. Now this is what he's saying. He's saying that the man God blesses is the man who bends forward to the whole revelation of God for his life. And in that bending forward, in that revelation, he meditates day and night. Word means to hum. You ever had a tune on your mind you couldn't get rid of? You just went around humming it all the time. Might be a Budweiser beer commercial. But, I mean, you just can't get it off your mind. And you go to sleep at night and you're humming that and you wake up in the morning and you're still humming it. I mean, it wasn't that you just consciously uh, decided, I'm going to learn this tune and I'm going to hum this tune. It just became second nature to you, didn't it? Now watch this carefully. In every learning experience, there are three steps First of all, it's mechanical, then it's awkward, then it's natural. Now, if you're learning to play the piano, first of all, you get the mechanics of that. And as you start applying the mechanics, it's awkward. You ever watch a little kid try to get his fingers over on those keys? But as you, as you apply the mechanics, even though it's awkward, the more you do it, the more it becomes like Marianne Craig. It just becomes as natural as breathing. That's true of learning how to play golf. It's true of learning how to work a computer. First of all, there's the mechanics, then it's awkward, and then it's second nature. Now watch this. The same thing is true in living the Christian life. You find the revelation of God, the mechanics. And let me tell you, when you start applying those mechanics, it's the most awkward feeling you've ever run up against because everything in you screams to do the opposite. And everything about you dictates that you do the opposite. But as you go in the process, it's called sanctification. And as you apply the mechanics over and over again, after a while, it becomes second nature. That's what happened here in the psalmist. He found the revelation of God for his life, and he bent forward toward it, and he began to live out that revelation until it became second nature. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in it he meditated day and night. He hummed it. The tragedy is that so many of us, when we learn the mechanics and we begin to apply the mechanics, they feel so awkward we quit before we get to the end of the process. Finally, the secret of this prosperous life is to bloom where you're planted, to coin a worn-out cliché. Now the text says that 
he planned, we are planted by rivers, plural. Now the word literally in the Hebrew is transplanted. He transplants us by rivers of water, by an overabundance of sustenance and resources. He takes us out of the bad soil and puts us in the good. He takes us out of the old life and puts us in the new life. It's called conversion or regeneration. That's what Paul meant when he said that he translates us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His marvelous light. If you've been saved, you've been transplanted from one way of life into another way, from one soil to another. And notice where, what he's saying. He's saying you're not, here by, you're not there by accident. Folks, where you find yourself today is not by accident. God has transplanted you there. You're not there because of some bad luck. If you're going through some difficult situation in your life, it's not because you just had, you're just on a streak of bad luck. There's no such thing as bad luck for a Christian. If you're where you... It, it, you're where you are because God transplanted you there. Now watch this carefully. Wherever He has transplanted you, there is an overabundance of resources for you to live successfully there. If He has transplanted you in the situation right now that you feel is grievous and painful and difficult, He's transplanted you beside the sufficient resources for you to live in prosperity right there. And you say, well now, wait a minute. I'm in a desert. This experience through which I'm passing is a desert for me. Well, if God has transplanted you into a desert where there are no rivers, you've got His Word, He'll dig you one. In fact, that's what the word river means there. It means canals. It means to cut out. And what he's saying is this, that God will take your life and He will transplant you over here and He will dig out a river to supply the resources for you to be successful there. Now the question is, what does that mean? I mean, what does it look like? to be prosperous. I'm going to mention three or four things and then we're through. He says that you will be fruitful. Now watch. Healthy fruit. Are you listening? Fruit depends on good soil and healthy roots. A fruitful life depends on good soil, healthy roots. I think sometimes we put too much emphasis on the fruit. For example, here's a person who says, I just can't witness. I wish I knew how to witness. I'm going to go to some kind of a training school so they can teach me how to witness. And they put the emphasis on the fruit. Or there's somebody who says, I don't know how to pray. I wish I could pray. I know people who ask God for things I didn't even know God had. I wish I could pray. So I want to go to some seminar somewhere that will teach me how to pray. So I'm going to register for a seminar on prayer. And they put the emphasis on the fruit. Listen to me carefully. You take care of your relationship with God. And you'll have so much fruit in your life, you won't know what to do with it. Because fruit depends on a healthy root system and good soil. 
If I'm in the car on Saturday morning, I'll turn on and catch old Neil Sperry. You know how old I am now, because I like to listen to this guru talk about gardening. And occasionally, some old guy about like me, or some, you know, sweet little old lady will call in, and she'll say, Mr. Sperry, I've got this tree that just won't bring any, bear any fruit. I've got this apple tree, and, and it just never does have any apples. You know, I'm thinking, what are we going to do about that tree? You know, I'm listening, boy, I'm tuned in. I've noticed that the guru on gardening never talks about the fruit. You know what he talks about? He talks about the root system. First question he asks, when you got that tree, was it bagged and burlapped or was it in a planter, a container? He talks about the root system. And the second thing he talks about is the soil. Well, you see, a fruitful life depends upon a healthy root and a, and a healthy soil. You want to bear fruit? You want to be fruitful in your Christian life? Then you begin to develop the relationship you have with God and you have all the fruit one can stand. Second, it's His fruit. It's fruit. You know what he's saying? He's saying that the fruit you bear may not be the same as your neighbor's. And don't you let your neighbor intimidate you because you don't bear fruit like them. Not every tree bears apples. Not every tree bears oranges, you see. It's its fruit. Now, I'm talking about spiritual gifts here, really. And I know that we spend a lot of time, and we should, on trying to identify our spiritual gifts. And we have seminars on trying to identify our spiritual gifts. And we ought to know, we ought to be able to identify our spiritual gifts. Let me tell you something. You get your relationship right with God, and you'll have such spiritual gifts manifested that even the unbeliever will identify them for you. It's its fruit. And it's in its season, his season. What he's saying is this is that just at the right time, and God never gets in a hurry, but He's never late, just at the right time, God, if you have a right relationship with Him, and if you have the right root system, just at the right time, God will produce fruit in your life that's needed. I'm sure that people in Jesus' day must have criticized Jesus for spending 30 years before He ever started His ministry. Let me tell you, God was taking 30 years for a three-and-a-half-year ministry in Jesus. And He took 40 years to get Moses ready for one event. I want you to hear me now. It just may be that God has, is spending His time in your life getting you ready for one great event. As a matter of fact, what you're experiencing now may be God getting you ready for that event. And when the time is right, if you're right in your relationship with God, that fruit will be manifested. We've got to get our perspective correct, however. There are some people who say, I, you know, I just don't read my Bible anymore because it don't make any sense to me anymore. When the truth is, it doesn't make any sense to you anymore because you're not reading it. And there are some who say, I don't pray because I don't feel close to God anymore. And the truth is, you don't feel close to God because you don't pray. And there are some who say, I, I'm not involved in the church anymore because I don't care about God anymore. When the truth is, you don't care about God anymore because you're not involved in the church. You work on that relationship with God. You bend your life toward that, and that fruit will be manifested. And it says, and its, re and its leaf will not wither. Its leaf 
will not wither. It means that it won't fade in the sunshine and it won't wilt in the heat. And it means that it will be there and fruitful in the most difficult pressures of life. D.L. Moody was known for his declaration, the declaration of his commitment. He made one day when a man said to him, D.L., the world has yet to see a man who is totally committed to God. And when he got alone, D.L. Moody prayed this prayer, Lord, I want to be that man. And in every, at every point in the history of the church where there is some great manifestation of God's power, it is always, it has always been that there has been a man of God or a woman of God who made that kind of commitment. In the first century, there was a man who said, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. In the fifth century, there was a man by the name of Augustine who said, I will not stop until the unseen guide who goes before me bids me stop. In the 16th century, there was a man named Luther who in the whirlwind of opposition said, Here I stand, I can do no other. In the 17th century, there was a John Bunyan who was told that his release from prison was contingent upon his never preaching again. And he said, you let me out today and I'll preach tomorrow. In the 18th century, there was Jonathan Edwards who wrote in his diary, resolved that every man ought to live to the glory of God, resolved second, if nobody else does, I will. And in the 19th century, there was a man named Livingston who said, when I die, Cut out my heart and bury it in the soil of Africa, for here I totally committed my life to God. And in the 20th century, there was... You fill in the blank. And if the first name you think of is somebody else's than yours, then you're not ready for the spiritual prosperity of this text. Is there a man? Is there a woman who would say, God, I want to be this. Let's pray together. Father, speak to our heart today and call from us a commitment that is deeper than life itself, deeper than all other desires, transcends all other commitments, so that there is only one desire, only one commitment, and that is to be, as this psalmist describes, for I pray in Jesus' name for His sake.